Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. This week, we're pleased to welcome U.S. Olympian Don Cardong. At the 1976 Olympic Marathon in Montreal, Don used a patient and disciplined strategy to finish in fourth place, losing out on a bronze medal by a mere three seconds. However, Don's future in running was influenced much more by a race he ran and won just before the Olympics, the Peachtree Road Race 10K in Atlanta. That experience ultimately led to the founding of the Bloomsday Run in Spokane, Washington, a 12-kilometer race that attracts nearly 50,000 finishers annually. Don and the Bloomsday organizers have done a great job of including all sorts of charity and fun running while maintaining the race's roots as a top-level competition for some of the best runners in the world. Some of the things that Don and I discussed included Don's own running career and the training that made him one of the top-ranked runners in the U.S., the race strategy that Don employed to finish fourth place at the marathon and the Olympic Games, how the Bloomsday Run came to be and the rapid growth it experienced in its first few years, the extreme importance of communication between all parts of the organization when putting on and planning a race, and finally one of Don's craziest experiences as race director, which is indeed a very crazy story. We'd like to thank Don for speaking with us and wish him the best of luck at future Bloomsday races. Any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash Don Cardong. I'm your host, Lucas Felton, and thanks for listening. Well, Don, thanks so much for being on our show today. Um, I'd like to kind of break this into two parts, one about uh, about you and your running career and the second about the uh, the Bloomsday Run. So can you start out by uh, telling us about your background and how you started out in the sport? Uh, sure. I was uh, primarily interested in basketball when I was in uh, elementary school and, you know, through junior high, I guess. And uh I played uh, freshman basketball in high school, and um, at one point the um, basketball coach said, what are you doing to get ready for the the season? This was actually before my sophomore year. And I said, I don't know, what should I do? And he said, well, why don't you turn out for cross country? And uh, cross country was a new varsity sport then, and uh, I didn't know much about it, but um, I figured if the basketball coach thought I should turn out for it, I should turn out for it. So... Uh, I did, and then found out pretty quickly that um, I was better at running than I was at basketball. And um, I did play basketball that uh, sophomore year, but that was really the end of it, and um, have been into running ever since. So it's been almost 50 years. I figured out later, uh, years later, that um, I think the, the basketball coach had talked to the uh, cross country coach, who was also our PE instructor, and. Uh, the uh, our PE, instru- PE instructor would always have us run a two, this two-mile course, and I did pretty well in in that PE class. I think he probably went to the basketball coach and said, "Why don't you talk to this kid?" And came to turn out. So um, I'm glad he did. So I did that uh, high school. I had some good success there, but I wasn't a great high school runner. So I really uh, hadn't exactly planned on running in college, but um, back in that time period, if you um, competed in college as a freshman, you could only compete in uh, freshman sports. So uh, that was true of every sport. You could not come in as a 
freshman and, and play varsity anywhere. That was actually a good system for me because I, uh, I thought, well, I could turn out for uh, freshman cross country. And uh, I think if, if I'd had to think about stepping up to varsity college competition, uh, given my kind of average mediocre high school times, I don't think I would have had the guts to do it. But um, but I did uh, my my freshman cross country had a good experience there, and um, my times really uh, improved quite a bit in my freshman year. And then uh, the next year. I made uh, the varsity, and um, we ended up going to the Nationals. They were in Van Cortland Park in uh, New York City, and we finished uh, second in the nation. So I was by then I was pretty sold on college competition, too, and uh, competed there at Stanford through my senior year. And um, by then I kind of got the bug and thought maybe I could – compete in the Olympics if uh, everything went well in the, on the day of the trials. So I took the, I graduated in 1971 and took the year off and uh, just trained as well as I could and uh, made my first national team indoors. I was doing really well and then got, um, as we got into the 1972 year, um, I got mono and uh, kind of knocked me out heading into the Olympic trials that year. So I did run the trials, but uh, didn't do very well, And but figured I'd gotten close enough to making the team that I had to give it another shot. So four years later, uh, I'd kind of gravitated into the uh, marathon and figured that if I did everything right on the day, I might make the team, and I did. And uh, Frank Schroeder and Bill Rogers were 1-2 in the trials, and I was the Third guy crossed the line and got to go to the Olympics. So that was 1976. Once I had made the team, I thought, you know, if I kind of run, you know, a smart race in the Olympics, I might uh, come home with a medal. And I just, I, I'd watched enough or read enough, I guess, about uh, kind of major marathons, and it seemed to me that what everybody did was they kind of got into that lead pack and they hung on for as long as they could. And then they, once they started to drop, they dropped very badly. And um, I figured I would run it the other way around, that I would start at a more moderate pace and um, and hit it harder the second half of the race and see who I could pass. And um, that's that worked out pretty well. I got, got all the way up into uh, third place with about three or four miles to go and thought I was going to get the bronze medal with about a mile to go. Um, Carl Desmond of Belgium caught me, and we sort of battled from there to the finish, and he, he got away from me on the downhill going into the stadium and um, couldn't catch him when we got back on the track. So I ended up uh, fourth, got pretty close to my goal of getting a medal, but didn't quite get it. So just uh, three seconds out of the bronze medal is where I ended up. But it was my, uh, was and still is my, personal best in the marathon around 211.16, and um, that was uh, as fast as I ever went. I thought, actually, you know, that years later I might uh, better that, but had a couple of shots at it, but never, never could quite get there again. So I had my best race in the Olympics, which I think is the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ideally, I would say so. 
So that was um, that was certainly looking back on at the peak of my career. I did compete for a few more years at a fairly high level, and then uh, kind of uh, got busy with other stuff. And, and I've run all those years since turning out for. Uh, high school cross country, but uh, just gradually kind of ratcheted back on the, you know the number of miles and the, the intensity of it, and um, still doing a little bit of running today at a pretty slow pace. <laughs> well, that's that's good to hear. So when you started running, in would have been what about the mid '60s or so? Yeah, 1964, uh, the fall of '64 was my first year. So who were some of your big influences in the sport when you when you were starting out? Well, certainly, um, Jerry Lindgren, who was really tearing it up as a kind of the first high school megastar. I grew up in the Seattle area, but um, hearing about Jerry and and his exploits uh, was was really pretty exciting. Um, Jim Ryan was, uh, you know, in the midst of becoming the first high school runner to break four minutes. He was an inspiration, um, and Billy Mills. Uh, who in in uh, the fall there of 1964 got the gold medal in the uh, 10,000 in the Olympics was he was a tremendous inspiration and and has been really all my career I've always looked up to Billy both for what he achieved as a runner and just kind of his life you know beyond running as well he's been uh, quite an inspiration so he was he was big and then actually we had some other guys that did pretty well in those. 64 Olympics. Um, Bob Shule won the 5,000, and Bill Dellinger was third there. So that was almost that was kind of a coming out for U.S. distance runners uh, uh, in the Olympics. And um, I think a lot of people from my era were inspired by what those guys achieved in 1964. And probably um, I'm thinking if there's a you know, it might have been about that same time. I I remember watching footage of um, maybe Bakila uh, winning the marathon in both 1960 and and then in 1964. And um, he was probably the first marathoner I ever um, became aware of. And uh, the first the first Olympics in Rome, he ran uh, he ran barefoot and. At the time, I thought that was pretty amazing. As I got into running, I just simply couldn't believe how somebody could do that. I know he had, he had been training barefoot, but not on cobblestones, and that was a pretty incredible performance of his. So all of those guys, I think, were were an inspiration for me. And I guess the the, the final one I mention is uh, Roger Bannister, who read his book, The Four Minute Mile, uh, kind of about how he uh, broke that barrier for the first time, and and um, that's probably one of the first athletic books that I ever read, and I think like a lot of runners at that time, you know, it kind of made the mile something special, even though I didn't finally end up as a miler. I certainly ran it enough times and appreciated what he had achieved, so all of those guys, I think, were an inspiration for me. And so during your running career, well, your elite running career anyway, you, uh, you raced against kind of a who's who of great American runners. Tell us about racing guys like Steve Prefontaine and Frank Shorter and all those other guys. Well, um, yeah, Frank Shorter, I only raced, uh, I guess I raced him a few times. Um, you know, his winning that the 72 Olympic marathon was uh, pretty special 
from the sport in the United States. And, and uh, you know, at other times in the year, he was a little bit more vulnerable. I beat him. Uh, I beat him a couple times, uh, I remember. Um, not in the marathon, but uh, indoor, running indoors, two miles and so on. Prefontaine, I think I figured at some point I raced him about nine times. I never did beat him. He was a couple years younger than me. Um, so I don't know that he, he wasn't an inspiration to me as much as he was kind of the standard that um, we were all trying to get to. And he was the guy we were all trying to beat uh, more than anybody because he was so he was so dominant at all all distances in that era except the marathon. And so I always felt that kind of chasing after his excellence was uh, something that got my my own performance up to a pretty high level. I don't know if I would have gotten there without kind of somebody like that who uh, I could always kind of key on. And I came close to beating him once or twice, but um, but he was he was tough to beat as anybody that has looked into his career knows. Then there, you know, there were a bunch of guys in that era that were were pretty awesome, and some of them, you know, you probably wouldn't even know anymore. Their names have sort of faded, but uh, there were a lot of really top runners, both on the track and then as road racing became, you know, more of a feature. Guys that were pretty pretty awesome on the roads. I mean, w- when we went to road races in the late 70s, early 80s, we just we expected there were going to be Americans up at the front, and there usually were. So it was a great time to to be a runner, and you had to be on your game to to win some of those races. So can you tell us about your your training when you were were at a high level like that? Yeah, I think I got to, uh, you know, probably in college, um, I might have been 80 to 90 miles a week, something like that, but but you race so much in college, you can't put quite as much time into your actual training. Um, the year that after I graduated, I, I wanted to find out what I could do with higher mileage, and I think in that, in that year, in 1972, there were some times when I pushed my mileage up to had a couple of 140 mile weeks and you know you can do that but you have to be careful that you're not slowing down um, you become stronger but you also if you don't keep some good interval work in there you you can kind of slow down so I kept the intensity but just continued to pump on the mileage and I've always responded well to higher mileage and uh, so those it was kind of a couple of weeks over 140, and and um, eventually figured out that was probably more than was helpful. So uh, when I took it down more in the 110 to 120 range, um, with you know a couple of days of good speed work, uh, that's probably um, the best training that I did, and uh, that's basically what I was doing going into the Olympics in 1976. Um, I was running twice a day, uh, an easy five-mile run in the morning, and then uh, a 10-mile run or 10 10 miles of uh, some kind of tempo or speed work or fart lick or something in the afternoon. And so a typical day would be 15 miles. And then um, on the weekend, I tried to get one. On on, uh, Sunday, I tried to get one 20-mile run, and uh, that was 
that would be a good week for me. At, uh, I guess a typically good week was uh, about 110 uh, miles uh, and at least two days of uh, speed work. And so that was so. Was that what you would do for pretty much all kind of racing, or did that change at all as you got up to marathon distance? Well, I did try to um, focus more on my long run as I got into um, the marathon more. I was really, even going into 1976, I was known more for being a 5,000-meter runner. Um, those were my, the battles I had with Fontaine were at 5,000 or three miles. And so the marathon uh, was in the back of my mind as something that I might uh, have some success at, but um, until... Uh, I made the Olympics in the marathon. I didn't consider myself primarily uh, a marathoner. Uh, once uh, past the Olympics, and once that was, you know, more what I was known for, then I, I did. Uh, I didn't adjust my my training a lot, but I probably uh, did more uh, longer intervals uh, when I did speed work, and um, and really tried to to keep uh, the, uh, at least one long run a week uh, in the mix. So not a tremendous change from uh, training for 5,000 uh, to the marathon, but uh, a little bit more distance and a little bit longer intervals. Makes a lot of sense. That's um, a, I've asked that question of a bunch of different people, and their, um, their answer is usually something similar, where the, uh, turning overall doesn't really change much for the marathon, just little tweaks here, just little, you know, little tweaks in the in the long run or things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, you can, if you get too, uh, as I kind of mentioned before, if you get too uh, focused on the distance, uh, running more mileage, um, it can be counterproductive. And so uh, I was aware of that at the time and just tried to make sure that didn't happen. Fair enough. So I, I was trying to find this. When did you officially kind of retire from, you know, top-level competition? Well, I don't know that I you know, ever... You really? Well, I, I think I continued to compete, you know, try to compete at a high level, uh, certainly into the 80s. Um, I, after the Olympics, <clears throat> I, I probably was in better shape in 1978 than I was in 76 in, in some ways. I was... Uh, running some pretty good workouts and and uh, just never never quite had the race um, all the elements of the, the um, race come together in a marathon the way I did at Montreal but uh, but I was certainly training with the intent of making another Olympic team in 1980 uh, so um, my interest was still at a pretty high level still and I was I was uh, getting some good, um, having some good racing, and uh, certainly into the 80s, I would say um, it, as we got into 81, 82, uh, I was more involved in some of the changes in the sport to bring uh, prize money competition to road racing, and and sort of my own competition tended to uh, fade a little bit and as we got into the 80s. So uh, certainly up until 1980-81, I was considered myself an elite runner and still training that way. Uh, after that, uh, a little bit less so, it kind of tapered off. 
Fair enough. I was gonna ask that. Um, what was your experience like as running and as the sport of running in general, especially road racing, got more professional and finally, you know, got out of the amateur era? Well, I was really involved in that. Uh, we, I mean, I just thought that the whole uh, ethic of amateurism enforced on uh, runners that uh, had the ability to make a living was just wrong and didn't make any sense. And um, I mean, I think there's there's a certain uh, beauty to saying I, I do this because I love it, but I think you can love it and make your, your living from it at the same time. And um, so uh, I was really supportive of that. I think in some ways um, we picked up a banner that uh, Pre had in a lot of ways begun, which is, you know, to fight for uh, your economic freedom as a as a runner. And um, so in, uh, as, as things moved in that direction, um, you know, I was really involved in that. And um, we had a group called the Association of Road Racing Athletes that was, um, you know, really uh, helped bring about uh, some of those changes. Uh, Unfortunately for me personally, my own uh, running career was kind of tapering as some of that was taking off. So uh, as I recall, I think I only managed to win prize money in one race, the Houston Marathon one year. I was about Mm -hmm. 13th, I think, well, maybe $400. That was about (laughs) as much as I could, uh, as I was able to eke out of it. But... uh, uh, so yeah, my my running career and the and the beginning of the professional part of the sport didn't didn't really jive together very well. Right. So um, a couple more training questions. Um, as you've as you as your elite career kind of tapered off, you were I'm assuming still you know going to races like locally. Um, what kind of training changes did you make as you got older? Um, probably the main change was uh, my overall mileage uh, was starting to drop and uh, some of that was uh, I just I mean my body wasn't holding up to it anymore I, I was very fortunate in the early part of my career the, I guess the main part of my career to be mostly injury free I had a few little things that uh, bothered me, but I could I could uh, thump on a lot of mileage and do some pretty intense workouts and not get injured. But as I got older, like into my uh, mid to late 30s, I started to get a little bit of everything, you know, mostly muscle tweaks um, that would limit what I could do. And so um, my training really uh, overall, the overall mileage part of it started to drop. I still was doing, I still would do some pretty intense speed workouts, but, um, you know, when I would compare times, they weren't as good and just couldn't kind of crank it the way I had done earlier. So probably both a reduction in overall mileage and a a slowing down uh, are what I experienced as I got older. And then I have to ask, one of the people I've interviewed for this uh, podcast series was Kim Jones, and Uh uh, you were a pretty frequent training partner to her for a few years uh what's oh, your yeah. favorite kim jones training story kim kim was uh always was such a surprise because 
the way she started was um, so unusual, I think, and she kind of uh, stumbled her way into the sport and just found out how what a great runner she could become. Um, the the thing we always laugh about with Kim is she, because she was younger than the rest of us that, that would train together, we would be uh, comparing, I guess, injuries and, you know, and bemoaning the fact that we were either getting slow or that we were getting injured. And, and Kim at some point said, um, you guys, all you ever do is complain about uh, about your injuries. And um, there's got to be some reason you're getting them. It's not just that you're getting older. And we said, well, Kim, let's see. Let's see what it's like as you get older. <laughs> right. I think, I think she experienced some of the same thing a few years later, but since she was younger, it was, uh, you know, she wasn't at that stage where you're, you're feeling that the way that we were. Uh, so we think that we think she eventually learned that lesson uh, or learned that experience, uh, but she she didn't really uh, like hearing us complain all the time. <laughs> I think my personal favorite was um, she talked about doing a uh, doing a hill workout where she had to uh, wanted to get to a certain heart rate, uh-huh. but her heart rate naturally was so low that it like couldn't get to the 180 beats a minute that her coach wanted her to get to so of course everybody's completely spent at the top of the hill and like what what is going on with you lady (laughs) that was my favorite you know there's another time that kim was um and i wasn't officially her coach but i guess i was kind of coaching her in a way um or at least advising her and she uh she was in great shape and ran the Twin Cities Marathon, I think it, it was, and um, had a pretty good run, but but had had some problems. I don't remember what they were, but but didn't get the time that she was really um, hoping for. And she came in to talk to me, you know, and she said, "Well, you know, maybe I should go run New York," and, which was I don't know, just wasn't that much later, a few weeks later. I said, "No, Kim, you've had a." You've had a good year. You've, you know, I know you didn't hit the time that you wanted to hit, but you know, maybe time to just back off and and uh, and cool it for through the winter here, and then pick it up again next year. And she's, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And then she'd leave, and then a few days later she'd be back. She's, like, yeah, I'm really, I'm still thinking I might like to run New York. You know, and give her the same talk and say, you know, I don't really don't think that's a good idea. You probably got more residual. Uh, problems in your muscles and you think you do and if you try to run another marathon you know you might injure yourself yeah 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 you're right you know i probably should back off you know so and about, finally about about the third time she came in i said you know kim sounds to me like you're going to go run new york so just be careful and uh you know take take it uh take it as easy as you can <laughs> and, <laughs> and then i was watching the coverage later on and she's there she is in second and, and moving uh, almost moved up into and won the dang thing and uh and it was so amazing and i just learned then that she was capable of doing some things that uh i wouldn't advise i certainly wouldn't have done myself um and uh could do them extremely well so she uh i wouldn't say she proved me wrong but in a way she did she wasn't trying to prove me wrong she just wanted to to really 
run a good marathon when she was in great shape, and um, and she knew herself, knew her abilities better than any of us. Yeah, that was. I think that was. If I unless I missed my guess, that was 1989. That that, that sounds right. Yeah, that year is sticking mm-hmm. in my head. Well, that was. Those are some uh, some great stories. So um, I'd like to move on to the second part of the interview. I'd like to talk about the uh, the Bloomsday Run. Can you uh, sure. tell us how that came to be? Well, I had uh, run a, a the Peachtree Road Race in Atlanta in uh, July of the Olympic year, 1976, and that was the first time I had been in a what well, what was at the time a, a large city run. Um, I actually had wanted to run Beta Breakers one year when they had about 5,000 runners and, and uh, never was able to. So Peachtree, I think that year they had 2,000 people in it. Uh, I was invited by Jeff Galloway to come run there. And I won it, which was good. But uh, more than that, I just kind of thought, wow, this is really cool because you've got some Olympic-type runners in this event having a contest there at the front end. And then you've got all these citizen runners um, you know, farther back, and you're kind of running through the downtown part of your city. I thought it was just the coolest thing ever, and it sounds funny now because, you know, runners these days have all grown up in a world where, of course, that's what it is. You know, every city has a big big run, at least one, and maybe many, and um, the whole idea of, uh, of what has become a, um, you know, the standard of a big city run with... Uh, is is now pretty commonplace, but it was a brand new thing then, and I just thought that was amazing. And then I saw another one at the Charleston, West Virginia, uh, Charleston, Charleston Distance Run. They had about a thousand runners, same kind of thing. It it started and finished in the downtown area. There were about you know, a thousand runners. Most of them were actually pretty good runners, but um, you know some of the guys that I knew from the sport were competing at the front end. So I'd seen these two races, and um, I was back in Spokane, and um, the Heart Association was sponsoring some uh, some runs around town, and um, they had one down by the Bowling Pitcher along the Spokane River, and, and uh, afterwards a reporter from the newspaper uh, asked me, you know, so what do you think of, of all this interest in your sport. Well, that run had maybe 150 runners in it, but you know, it was still kind of a cool thing. And I said, well, I think this is great. And I think we ought to have one of those downtown runs that I saw in Atlanta and Charleston. Um, I think uh, I think it would be a, a pretty neat thing for Spokane. So she quoted me as saying that in the paper, and then um, I don't know if it would have gone anywhere, but... Uh, I happened to be in a function at City Hall and um, got on the um, elevator with then Mayor David Rogers. He said, yeah, you're an Olympic runner, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he said, I saw what you said about having uh, a big run in Spokane. He said, I grew up in Boston. I remember the Boston Marathon coming through my neighborhood. He said, I think this would be a great thing for, for Spokane. So... There, on that elevator, there was my, myself, Mayor Rogers, and an acquaintance of mine, 
um, who was with the Spokane JCs, kind of a, a promotional group for the city, kind of like a uh, chamber of commerce for younger guys. He heard this exchange and he said, he said, well, he says this might be a project that the JCs would would take take on. And so um, he went and talked to the JCs and. And we started to get people hearing about this and said, you know, we can help. And the ball started rolling. And the next spring we had, in 1977, we had the first Bloomsday run. So uh, it was kind of, in many ways, a series of accidental things that, that happened together with some of the experiences I had had uh, before and after the uh, Montreal Olympics that kind of... Um, set the stage. The other thing I would say is one of the reasons it made sense to me is because um, Spokane had hosted a World's Fair in 1974 and in the aftermath of that had redeveloped the downtown area and we had a nice new park that was connected to the downtown area and it all seemed like a perfect staging area for uh, for a run that uh, like Bloomsday has become. So I just think we were kind of fortunate to have had all those developments uh, in um, in the city that made it really easy to kind of start a Bloomsday run. It's hard for me to imagine doing uh, a Bloomsday run the way the uh, city was configured before uh, the World's Fair. It just wouldn't have been very amenable to doing what we've done. Sounds like kind of an inauspicious beginning to something that's become such a huge event. It was, although we actually uh, uh, thought we might get 300 runners, and I think we, as as uh, it became apparent that we were going to get more than 300, um, we said that we were going to limit it to 500 because we. You know, we said if it gets beyond 500, we don't know if we can kind of control things. <laughs> and and then and then uh, as we got more than 500 people signed up, we said, well, I guess we better deal with it because what are we going to do? You know, mail people's uh, entry form and check back, or you know, how are we going to reject people? So we just said we'll we'll take as many as we get, and we ended up with. Um, well, 1,200 finishers that first year, 1198, I think it was. Although now that doesn't seem like very many, um, since we were only expecting about 300 or so the, that first year, uh, I was stunned that we got as many as we got. And um, and I just remember how exciting it was the first year uh, as we ran down uh, Riverside uh, with the big crowd and everything. It was just so so. Uh, exciting to have been involved in starting it. It just seemed like a massive start for us. So we were, uh, we kind of came out of the blocks uh, really well. And then by the second year, we were 5,000. And by the third year, we were 10. And so then it was just like, wow, we've got to figure out how to keep up with this. Everywhere in the country was experiencing uh, the growth of running events kind of, similar to that but um, but uh, it was it was fascinating because nobody really knew how to um, manage that number of runners and um, how do you time them how do you keep track of them how do you provide provide for them it was 
kind of all new territory. We used to get together with some of the other big events, New York and Boston and so on, and just kind of share information and, you know, see how other events were kind of doing the their tasks and uh, see if we could, what we could adopt for Bloomsday. But it was it was exciting because every year, we about the first 10 years, we, we would grow by about another 5,000. And the main thing we were trying to do is just keep up with the growth. It was hmm. a, pretty exciting. Sounds like it. So I got to ask, where did the twelve idea for a twelve k distance come from? Well, you know, when when and I was primarily the person looking for the course, and it seemed to me that the the events that that um, attracted a large number of citizen runners were somewhere between uh, five miles and ten miles, somewhere in that range. Um, I think Beta Breakers was seven at the time. Um, Peachtree was 10k. Uh, Charleston Distance Run was on the high end. I think it was. I think it was 10 miles. Um, and that range is what we were shooting for. And the idea being, you know, uh, if somebody is thinking of participating, if it gets beyond 10 miles, they're going to say, "Oh, that's too far. I can't go that far." And if it's less than five, they they don't see it as much of a challenge or as much of a challenge. But if you get between five and ten, I think a lot of people say, well, I think I could do that, you know, but I'm not sure, you know. And so it becomes kind of exciting for them to to kind of uh, figure out how to get in good enough shape to to do that distance. So, um, so, so myself and a friend of mine went out and kind of scouted out some uh, different courses, and they all, the ones that made sense came in right around eight miles. And um, so for the first three years, we had a, cor- a little different course than what we do now, um, but kind of in the same area and some of the same segments. And it was, we didn't even worry about the exact distance. It was about eight miles, and I think we even said on the entry form approximately eight miles or something like that. And it wasn't as it wasn't as common in the '70s for a race to be too worried about um, exactly how far it was. There was the standardization of road courses came came about more in um, eight, in the early '80s, and um, so a lot of races around the country that were in existence weren't at any kind of standard. Uh, Petrie was a little different that way because it was 10K. So we were pretty happy with, you know, we'll just keep it around eight miles. And then we had to change the course uh, in 1980, changed it to basically the course that we have now. About that same time, the push to standardize to metric distances was kind of a national push. So we kind of looked at the new course that we had just kind of laid out. And it ended up being longer than 10K and shorter than 15K. And so we kind of said, well, it's not exactly a standard distance, but if we just tweak the start and finish a little bit, we can make it exactly 12K. And so we did. And although there aren't a ton of 12K races now, there are some. Uh, Pay the Breakers, uh, Sound and Arrows in, in Tacoma is 12K, and the Roadie Run in Port Townsend, Washington is a 12K. So there are some now, and then occasionally you'll see that distance run in 
uh, cross country or uh, some other settings. Uh, still not a real standard distance, but it ended up being kind of a, well, at least it was a metric standard uh, or a metric distance uh, that we selected, and it matched the course that we'd laid out pretty well. I was just thinking you said how in the 70s people weren't as concerned about standardizing distances. I was just thinking about be, you know, managing a running store now and being fairly involved in, in the running community. That just would fly for so many people. Like not let alone, <laughs> let alone the let alone people you know the organizations, so many people participating would just that that just wouldn't go. They just wouldn't do it if they didn't know how far it was. I know, yeah. I mean, but the funny thing, I mean, it was the mindset was that that road courses were by their nature not amenable to being standardized and. If you want to know exactly how far you run, you run, run on the track. Right. And even even cross country races, um, you know, you run the wheel around, but they're they're still approximations rather than um, real specific, well measured uh, distances. And there was a lot of controversy as the systems were being put into place to certify the distance of of road courses. Some people say, why are we bothering with this? You know, again, if people are worried about the exact distance they should get on the track. But, you know, there's just enough uh, people that want to, you want to know. I, mean, I had a funny, my wife doesn't run, run much now, but she did for a while. And um, she ran a, a 5K race, and the next couple weeks later she ran another one, she ran like 30 seconds slower. And she said, I don't want to understand why it slowed down. And I said, I said, well, were those courses certified? She said, well, I don't care if a course is certified or not. And I said, well, why are you comparing your times then, you know, if you right. don't know the di distance is the same? So uh, some people don't necessarily think that they uh, are that worried about it, but you, you want to know, you know, is it measured the same way as that other course that I ran? Is it the same distance? So you know if you're getting faster or slower. I just wanted to ask a little bit of a side question. Um, why is it you think that these days, even if they're you know standardized and measured, why is it that you think distances like you know 12k and 15k and 10 miles and different ones like that are really falling out of favor and to things like a 5k and a 10k and a half marathon? Yeah, it really does seem that way. Um, especially, it surprises me how many 5k events there are and how few at least in our area, uh, how, how few 10K races there are. Because it used to be that 10K was how you, you know, a lot of the advice that you would get uh, on your training was based on your best current 10K time. <laughs> right, I've read I some of that looking, stuff. I mean, I went looking for a, a 10K a couple of years ago that I could kind of figure out, you know, where am I at with all my training? And I, I just couldn't find any. There were... You know, there were lots of 5Ks. There were then there were these five-mile fun runs that are about five miles, uh, and I just it was bizarre to me. And I just maybe had been out of touch a little bit with the racing part of it for a while and hadn't realized. But and uh, and that 5K distance is a very easy distance for people to get into. You know, if they haven't raced before, if they just race a little bit, yeah, 5K, uh, it's a piece of cake. I don't know. It's it's just uh, people are funny that way. But you're right. Then 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 you've got then people either want to do a marathon or a half marathon. So it's not like they're afraid to go longer distances. But I guess it just over time, certain distances become 
uh, the ones that you compare with with your family and friends and other runners. You know, for some reason, those uh, some of the distances that used to be pretty popular have just kind of dropped off the map. And I can see why people, you know, the 12K, why they're not, you know, they, they don't standardize to that. But 15K, there used to be a bunch of 15Ks, and a lot of people kind of knew what their best 15K was. I don't know if anybody knows that anymore. Or, I mean, I'm sure some people do, but there are, are, I couldn't, I don't know where there's a 15K. Um, I haven't looked very hard, but uh, there used to be a fair number of those, and uh, so it's just, I don't know, just the, the way trends are, sometimes you can't really uh, deconstruct where that, why that moved in the way that it did. I think I, I, think I understand the half marathon because people like the idea of doing a marathon because that's, you know, got a lot of uh, pizzazz to it, um, but sometimes they're just not ready to go or don't want to do the training to do the full distance, and so doing a half marathon has kind of a nice little twang to it, too. It has that buzzword of marathon in it. Yeah, it has that, that buzzword in it. So, But it is it is kind of interesting the way that some fairly popular distances from the 80s are not much around anymore. So um, I'd like to move on a bit. I'm sure you could do you know two hours of speech on this, but... Can you just walk us through the logistical process of setting up a race like this? Yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's an amazing process, and it's one that if we hadn't grown into it, it would be, it would be overwhelming to imagine doing it. Um, and every year when we get our committee heads, we have about, we have about a 10-member board of directors. They meet once a month year-round. Then we have a then we have our committee heads, and there's about 70 or 80 of those. And when we get that, those committee heads together and uh, s- start comparing notes and when we have those meetings, sometimes they just sit back and go, man, this is such a complicated process. Uh, how did we ever get to this? Um, and I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't have. I'm just saying it's amazing that we got to, to, to where we're able to kind of manage all of that. But I mean, it's it's everything from the from the uh, you know when you have a city course, you've got all kinds of complications because you've got to get the permits to you know close the course. You have to know where you're going to have all your water aid stations. You know, you have to have thought through the medical part of it, and and that's almost a complete process in in itself. Knowing how you're going to deal with any kind of problems minor or major that occur uh, and then how are you going to set up your your timing it's you know with um, with computer tags now chips whatever you want to call them in a way it's easier well, but but the setup is much more complicated because you have to make sure that you're you're matching tags to the runner accurately or else you get inaccurate results so that whole lead-up process is, is complicated. And then just the communications, how are you going to, how's everybody going to be uh, in touch during the race? And, and then you start adding things like music, so then now you've got 30 bands on the course, and how are they going to make sure they don't get in the way of all the, um, all the water aid stations or the um, medical aid stations? It's just an incredible kind of... Um, coordination of efforts so you're not stepping on other people's toes or not just irritating them but um, 
making a real necessary system unable to operate. So the, the coordination is really key. And, and I, I sort of think my job, or any race director's job, isn't so much to do everything. Well, it's not. You can't do everything. But it's to make sure that everything is getting done and that people are talking to each other. And uh, usually where we have a problem that we identify uh, when we have our critique afterwards is because somebody decided to do something a little bit different and that ended up screwing up some other area. So anytime there are little changes, I, I almost immediately say, have you talked to, to these people about this? <laughs> you know? Right. It's, it, it sounds simple enough. I'm just going to... I'm going to do this a little differently this year. Well, okay, but you know this touches two or three other areas of the event. You better make sure you talk to those people. So not necessarily don't do this. Just if you want to do this, no, just make yeah. sure you talk to everybody else about right. it. Right. Yeah, and I mean even the even a simple change uh, can can have repercussions in other areas. And and of course you have to be looking for ways to change your event. Uh, that's what keeps it fresh and keeps people interested, but as you make those changes, uh, you just have to make sure that you're communicating with other people that uh, have a, an interest in the, either the areas that you're getting into or um, how you're doing that, and uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, actually, It's but it's, uh, it's challenging, and you, you hope you're not going to forget something that's somebody that should be... Uh, uh, meeting with somebody else, and and uh, as you're adding new things every year. Other than size, how else does the race kind of change and evolve throughout the years? Well, probably like a lot of events, um, we focus and have uh, continued to focus on the celebration, entertainment, uh, fun aspects of the event. I mean. Uh, we had that in the first year, but but it was more, uh, I suppose, the fun of the challenge of it. Um, so now we uh, we try to exp extend the the event into an event weekend and do things on the day before uh, that people might you know think are fun. Um, we try to have more entertainment uh, on the course, um, which people really like and. Um, so that's probably the biggest area where, uh, because we know that that brings in a lot of people um, who are, may not consider themselves runners at all or even even exercise walkers, but, um, but uh, kind of enjoy that whole um, community celebration part of it and want to be part of that. So that's the area where we've really changed most over the years and to my mind the one thing we as we change in that direction that we don't want to lose is we want this to be a competitive race we want it to be a real genuine Olympic caliber type uh, race up front and not just at the very front but you know for people that um, want to compare their time with uh, how they did last year or see how they did compared to other people in their age group we want to make sure that is legitimate because there's a big a percentage of our entrants who are very, very interested in their performance. So I think that's been uh, a challenge, I suppose, is, uh, you know, make the event more and more fun, but, but keep the 
it's a challenge part for the, the runners that are interested in their time and place. And that's especially, you know, there's so many events now that are primarily that uh, market themselves as, you know, this is for fun, you know, whether dressing in costumes, and we have some of that too, but um, whether it's costumes or, you know, the color runs or the mud runs and, uh, and all of those uh, certainly have their place. But we like to think that that uh, there's still the people that are interested in, in their performance. In looking at some results from other years, I've never seen as detailed a breakdown of where somebody finishes as I have on the Bloomsday website. Like you, you you're given your place, you know, for your age group and for the people from your town and the people from your state and oh yeah well i i suppose there are some like that we have um you know a lot of our the systems we use or the processes that we have are ones that we've developed ourselves so it's, it's not like they're off the shelf you know from some national company and i think our um, company that posts our results uh, has had some fun with those different breakdowns over the years, and and, um, and people like that. Uh, they like to see that, see how they compare with, you know, other people their age or in their age group, or, you know, then to see if you're the first person, you know, with your last name. Uh, right, that's another that's, one. That's, yeah, that's stuff to do. I think people really like that. Uh, so we want to, we certainly want to uh, make that available. So what's? Uh, I'm sure you couldn't give. You couldn't. I'm sure it'd be a long list, but what's a uh, what's one kind of crazy story from your experience as race director? Probably the weirdest thing that's ever happened is uh, we wanted to, to facilitate setup of our start line. So the idea was we were going to put rather than kind of come in and set up the truss with you know, with supports that we bring in, we thought, let's actually put some, to say, holes in the ground and, um, you know, we'll cover them up during the year, but then to set up for Bloomsday, we just open the flap and stick the poles in and, um, you know, make it uh, real easy to set up our, our start mechanism. So, of course, this is one of those things that sounds simple, but, you know, you had to get a city permit, so one of our board members was kind of carrying the ball on this. And so he went through the whole thing and even got the city permits. Then he uh, got some bids from different uh, companies that were going to drill these holes and, you know, get them set up for uh, the permanent stanchions. And he selected the, you know, the bid that he wanted and um, made all the arrangements to have the street sort of closed off while they were doing the work. And he got a call from the, uh, construction company that's doing the work and they said ah you might want to come down here and see this so he goes down and um they drilled the hole they discovered that they had drilled right into a, an underground parking garage <laughs> 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 you know it's kind of like did nobody know that this was there i mean when the city gave the permit did they not know that there was a, yeah it's a like parking where garage? where did this but, where did this very major detail get dropped yeah it's kind of a big big detail to to not have uh, risen to anyone's consciousness, so they had to fill the holes back in, and uh, we haven't haven't done that since. So that was that was pretty uh, <laughs> funny. Of course, he didn't think it was funny because he had, I'm he sure. had spent weeks sort of getting this all set up, and uh, now it 
amounted to nothing. So uh, that's that's one of the weirder stories that I've ever had. But boy, anybody that's been in race organization knows that you can you can only control things up to a certain degree and. We haven't had these things here, but when we get together with other race directors, I mean, they have, you know, their, you know, trains that weren't supposed to be there suddenly show up and uh, interfere with the runners, or there's a flood, or uh, you know, other kinds of extreme weather. Or I loved when the guy from Alan Steinfeld, who was the uh, technical director of New York City Marathon, he said uh, he was driving the course. Um, about a half hour before the start of the marathon going through one of the neighborhoods and there's all this police tape across the road found the police and he said what is this about and they said well there was we had a drug bust last night this is all a crime scene huh. and he says well there's going to be about uh, 20,000 runners coming through through here in about a half hour so you might want to remove it <laughs> and they did which normally they wouldn't have done but uh, I think they kind of got the idea so so once you go out, once you take a, uh, an event out into the city streets, it's just very hard to stay, to make sure that everybody who um, needs to know uh, knows what's going on and is, is on the same page. What kind of quick advice do you have for somebody who's trying to put on, who decides they want to put on a race? Well, the, the, the old, it, it is a complicated thing, and so it kind of... It's one of those things that you, you there is a, a really nice book called uh, Organizing Running Events that um, is available for somebody that, that wants to uh, get into race directing. Um, if they're getting into it on a smaller scale than that, I usually say, you know, go to, uh, go to wherever, you know, running store that has a bunch of um, entry forms and just uh, start designing your own entry form. And I say that because all the decisions that you need to make are going to show up on your entry form. How much are you going to charge? Where is it going to go? Uh, when is it going to be? Uh, what age groups are you going to have? What medals are you going to have? Are you going to give a T-shirt? You know, all those things will kind of come to mind as you start designing your own entry form. And then the other thing is you just have to give it more time than mo most people think they need to. And uh, nine months is certainly not, that's not too much time. And then I guess the other part of that is figure out where your course is going to go and then go talk to the municipal officials and tell them that here's where I want my course to go. Do you see any problems? Because if, if you design a course and you're set and you think you got it all figured out and then you go and they say you can't do that because we're going to tear up that street next next spring right before your event uh, you're back to square one and you've wasted time so I, I, I think getting the, the course figured out and approved at least tentatively is, is along with like I say designing an entry form are probably the two biggest things that you can do so uh, I have one last thing, because uh, I know you got a busy day ahead, and I want to keep you too much longer. Um, I always I'm ending all my interviews with these uh, last little series of questions. So uh, when you were competing, uh, what was your pre-race meal? Uh, you know, I could, I really couldn't eat hardly anything before a race. So I usually went to line with an empty stomach, and the only change to that would be in the marathon. I tried to take a, you know, maybe have some uh, some toast. You know, maybe I couldn't really have orange juice. It would kind of upset my stomach. But a little bit of 
uh, toast. Maybe the funny thing is over the years I figured out that what I typically have for breakfast, which is not on anyone's recommended breakfast list, but uh, a bowl of cereal. Um, would I digested it very easily, and it gave me a little bit of extra energy. So I finally got around to where if I needed to eat something, it was usually a bowl of cereal. Um, what was your favorite workout? I think my favorite workout, uh, I'll mention two. One of them would be a 20-quarter mile. So um, I got really good at this in, in college. I'd run a, uh, a quarter mile, that's once around the track, um, and then jog for a minute and then uh, keep going until I'd done 20 of them. And I got, so I was pretty good at, uh, at that. And, and it really, uh, because I took a short recovery and because I was running them pretty hard, um, I think that was uh, kind of a key workout for me, just being able to run a good 5,000. And the other one I really liked was I, I, I got to where I would do this on the road it would be um, uh, five-minute repeat. So uh, at one time, that was probably uh, close to a mile. But I just go out on a normal 10-mile run, run for about 10 minutes, and then start doing, uh, and then I would do a five-minute uh, pretty hard you know, segment, and then I would jog for maybe two minutes, and then, then do another five-minute uh, segment pretty hard uh, to where I'd do five, sometimes six of those. And that would be a very, very good workout for me. And, and again, another key workout um, for, for the 5,000 meters, but also for the marathon. Um, what was your favorite race, you know, race event to run? I always, because the Peachtree was such a, uh, you know, signature event in my uh, my life because it became the kind of the inspiration for Bloomsday. Uh, I always like going back to Pe- Peachtree, and it's such a bizarre success story. I think because the Fourth of July in Atlanta is always going to be hot and humid, and they still get over fifty thousand people, you know, coming to run that thing. It's uh, I just think it's it's a, a great event. It has inspired a lot of other events around the country. So um, I haven't gone, have not gone back for a few years now, but uh, I always, even as I got slower and older, I uh, like to go down there and run that. And what would you do for fun when during your career? I know you were working full-time most of it, but what would you do for fun? Uh, you know, well, I love to read. So um, I was uh, I got my second... Um, bachelor's degree in English, um, and so, you know, reading is something that I've always enjoyed, and um, and that was probably, for relaxation and enjoyment, probably the thing I like most. I mean, I like all kinds of other outdoor activities. I like, I like biking, I like uh, hiking, <clears throat> I like, um, you know, all kinds of outdoor stuff, but um, the time for that when I was training seriously was pretty limited, so... Right. And finally, what race would you have loved to run but never got a chance to? Beta Breakers. I mean, in a way, it's so crazy that uh, it's hard to take it seriously, but um, I just always wanted to run that, and for some reason, I just was never able to work it into my schedule. Uh, Some part of the reason probably is because, you know, for a while it was so out of control that uh, it was hard to even figure out how to get in there and, and do it. But um, that's another race that's been around so long and um, has been an inspiration in, in some ways for other events. I um, always wanted to do that. 
Well, very cool. Well, Don, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, a lot of great insights. I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot of benefit from it. Um, we'd like to, again, like to thank you for your time and wish you the best of luck in future Bloomsdays and have a good rest of the day. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, Don. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.